0: Heavenly Father, uh, this is uh, not just an exercise in religion. Our singing of your praises, our rehearsing the gospel and calling us into your presence and singing your praise and confessing our sin and being reminded that we find our righteousness in Jesus and now coming to study your word, to read it, to reflect on it. These are not religious exercises. They're actually a a full-on endeavor to grow in relationship with you and to know you better, to honor you more, to give you glory. So would you be our teacher, and would you instruct us now, give us insight and understanding. We come here, all of us, God, with so many different things going on in our lives. This is a special weekend in the life of our nation. We're thankful for the freedoms that we have, and may those freedoms continue. The freedom we have right now, God, is to ask you to speak to us from your word. Would you do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 19. David writes this psalm, and David declares that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, uh, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the statutes, By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, the word of God. Uh, An insightful book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. You maybe have heard of it. Maybe you've read it. The author is a guy named Carl Truman. Uh, And it traces how the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, has come to make sense. And in the very beginning of this book, he writes the following. I'm just going to read you a paragraph. He says, The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather, he writes, died in 1994, less than 30 years ago. And yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. And those who think of it as meaningful are not restricted to the veterans of college seminars on queer theory or French post structuralism. They are ordinary people with little or no direct knowledge of the critical postmodern philosophies whose advocates swagger along the corridors, corridors of our most hallowed centers of learning. And then he goes on for more than 400 pages to explain. The philosophical, the sociological, the political, and the spiritual revolutions that have already been happening for the last 150 years or so. All of which contribute to us getting to where we are today in our culture. Today he says that a person's identity, their values, their sense of right and wrong, these things are entirely up to a person's inner psychological convictions, or in other words, their feelings. Regardless of family context, regardless of community context, Regardless of biological context or a person's DNA, regardless of their spiritual context, today identity and values and ethics are determined by what I think, by what I feel, by what I want, with little or no reference to anything or anyone outside of me. Today we come to a psalm that, boy, It directly contradicts that kind of thinking. This psalm is, uh, I would say, packed with what we could call primal information. Vital information for understanding the world in which we live. Information that helps us understand and know what is right and what is wrong. Information that kind of explains the, the very moral fiber that is built into this cosmos regardless, really, what I think, regardless what I feel, regardless what I want. In our present secular, me-focused, individualistic world, the idea that anything outside of me has a right to judge me, has the authority to say that is right and that is wrong, that is good and that is bad, this is who you are, that idea is completely intolerable and unacceptable to us in our culture why well again because my values and my ethics and my sense of direction my sense of purpose my personal identity must come solely from within from my personal self-consciousness from my feelings and the psalm that we just read a moment ago wow (laughs) It challenges that presumption directly. And consequently, if you are here this morning and and you believe in Jesus, which I know it means most or many of us, uh, if you claim to follow Jesus, if it's your desire to obey Jesus, well, that is going to mean that you must live your life knowing that what you believe and how you live will be at odds with the popular currents of our culture. Psalm 19 tells us that there are laws, moral values outside of us. These things are objective. They are given to us, in fact, by God himself. In fact, they are derived from who God is. They're derived from his character, and that makes him both universals, meaning they apply to all men and women of all times everywhere, And they're also absolutes, meaning they're not debatable, and they're not negotiable. Decades ago, you have to be old to know or remember this, but decades ago, there was something called values clarification that entered into the process of American education. And a lot of Christians at the time were quite concerned about this and where this would lead. The idea then was uh, supposedly to help children better clarify their own values uh, many suspected that what the real intention was was to separate uh, children from the values they were receiving at home but anyway the, the, the uh, claim was to help children identify their their own values and so fourth graders were asked questions and these are real questions I'm not making these up these were real questions what is your favorite color do you like yogurt what do you think about sex outside of marriage what is your favorite baseball team And today, uh, those kinds of questions have actually evolved. And we've added questions now like, do you feel uh, like a person trapped in the wrong body? And all of these things would get discussed by the students as led by the teacher. And the assumption was then and still is today that these questions are all moral equivalents, right? Right? Uh, In other words, the color you prefer, whether you eat yogurt or not, your personal gender identification, the people that you prefer to have sex with, these are all moral equivalents, just things that each person needs to clarify and decide for themselves. And the Bible says to anyone who wants to know and follow Jesus, that thinking that way is, is badly mistaken. It's off the rails. It's way off course. And our psalm, the psalm we just read in verses 1 through 6, it makes several very critical, very important, uh, primally important uh, assertions. For one thing, it says there is a glorious God who has made everything. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of this God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, we are told. Secondly, we are told that he is known by all people everywhere. There's no speech, verse 3 says, or language where their voice is not heard. So here's the thing. You can deny him and you can declare him dead or irrelevant. You can disobey him. It doesn't matter. The message continues. Because the creation proclaims his presence and his power and his glory anyway, regardless of you or me. And it doesn't do this occasionally. It does it day after day after day after day. It's relentless, this message. This, of course, is uh, the same point that the Apostle Paul made. And Daniel walked us through this back in Romans, way back in Romans chapter 1. uh, Paul is reflecting on how it is that human beings can be who we are and act the way we do in light of the fact that we're made in the image of God. And he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they, or us, all of us, are without excuse. Completely without Excuse. There's another assertion made in those early verses, and that is that God isn't just the creator, that he's glorious, that he's almighty, that he's powerful, but it is in fact that he's good. He's a good God. And that's insinuated in verses four through six. How do we know? Well, look at what it says. It says, In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. What is a bridegroom like coming forth? forth from his pavilion. What's he thinking about? Is he going to actually say this in church? <laughs> he's thinking about his bride. He's a bridegroom and he's about to get married and be united with the one he most loves. And he's excited. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. Okay. He's excited. He's very excited. And here's another analogy. He's like a champion rejoicing to run his course. Why? Because he knows he's going to win. I love running races that I know I'm going to win. And that's what the sun is like. And it says it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. And here's what's interesting. Here's what's good. Nothing is hidden from its heat. See, this is something that God makes happen excitedly every day, every day, every day. And what the sun does is it dispenses its heat, which as we now understand, even better than David did. Everything depends on this. Life itself on this planet depends on this, this sun Being like a bridegroom coming out of his pavilion or being like a champion who's about to run his race, which he knows he's going to win. He's excited about it and it gives life, life to everything. This God is a good God who made the sun is the subtext here. And God does these things every day to bless us, to provide us, to protect us. And he does it with some enthusiasm, not boredom. And you can ignore him and you can can suppress him. You can deny him. It doesn't matter. He is still the reality behind our reality. You see, without him, we do not and we cannot exist. He makes the sun shine. And he makes it run its course every single day. And he makes sure that the heat of the sun is dispensed upon all of us equally, believer or unbeliever alike. And one more thing, although it's not really the focus, the specific focus of this psalm, it is alluded to, uh, and it is uh, the focus of many other psalms, and that is simply the point that this God who made it all, this God who is good, is also a judge. There is a subtext of that in in this psalm. We'll see it later on in some of the last verses that we'll look at. But you know, all over the Psalms, this point is made. Psalms that David, David himself, has written. Psalm 9, he writes, he will judge the world in its righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. Psalm 97, clouds and thick darkness surround him. This is an interesting description. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The way God leads and the way God rules is through righteousness and justice. He's a judge. One day we will meet this judge face to face. That will be a day of judgment. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear. Just as it is appointed to man to die once and after that the judgment. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. It's also alluded to here in our text and we'll get to that. So here's the big point of verses 1 through 6. And it's just the reality of Almighty God. He is the backdrop. He is the bedrock of everything, friends, everything. He is glorious. And this is why David starts where he does. He starts with the reality, the undeniable reality of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It is all, friends, not for your glory or mine, but for his glory. It is the work of his hands. And this fact undergirds everything. Everything. And if we acknowledge this truth, then we understand what David says next in verse 7. He, uh, he kind of changes his point of reflection a bit. And in verse 7, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Law here means more than just you know, like the Ten Commandments kind of a thing. David uses the word law almost like we would talk about the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible. The law of the Lord. Law here to David is referring to civil, ceremonial, moral law that God has given. It's God's self-revealing word. It's God's self-revealed will. And uh, when David uses this term, he actually is, is, is grasping another thought and tying them together. You know, this God is a covenanting God. A God who comes to us and because he loved us, entered into relationship with us. How did he do that? Well, through a covenant, through making many, many promises to us and through being faithful to that covenant, even when we are not. David is thinking of those promises. David is thinking of all the warnings that are contained in Scripture. All these things, he says, are absolutely perfect, just like the one from whom they come. David says the precepts of the Lord are right in verse eight. That word "right" is an interesting one, because it too is an idea that's tied to other ideas. The Hebrew word here refers to the use of a straight-edged tool. Any carpenters here, or you know, self-made? Car- you know what a straight-edged tool is about? It's referring to a tool that's used to build things, things that are important, things like buildings. You couldn't build a building 3,000 years ago, nor can you today, uh, without tools of accurate measurement, tools to judge distance, tools to determine straightness, uh, tools to determine height. These tools stand outside of us. They judge our own perceptions. I was talking to my youngest son, Graham, the other day, and he's an excavator, and and, uh, he's learning to use tools that give you very precise measurements of height and depth and width and length laser tools. And, uh, you know, you've got to use these tools, otherwise you dig ditches or foundations or things that are, yeah, well, sort of right. <laughs> you don't want that person doing your excavation. Yeah. To build a building, you don't say, well, you know, that looks pretty straight to me. No, you measure it. You use a plumb line, you use a square, you use a straight edge, you use a laser measurement to measure whether it's true or straight or right, you see. And why do we do this? Because we know that our perceptions and our impressions are very often wrong. And this is true at all levels, friends. When I was a kid, me and my friends lived in a a, a development that had a woods behind us, which is the coolest place you could ever live if you're a kid. And we would go back into those woods, and they went on forever. I don't think I ever got to the end of where those woods went. But, and we would go back in there, and we would carry our dad's tools with us. We would carry uh, wood, scraps of wood that we would have, because we were going to build tree forts. And we did this several summers running. And we would just get up these huge trees that were back there. How? Well, you know, you nail a board in. Now you got to step, and you can step on it. and go up to the next slide, nail another board. And eventually, you get way up into the boughs of these trees, and we would build tree forts. And boy, did we love doing do it. Now, nothing was tight. Nothing was level. Nothing was straight. And I guarantee you nothing was safe about this. Uh, but, you know, how long do you think our forts lasted? Usually one season. I mean, winter would come and the winds would howl, the snow would fall. And we'd come back next spring and it'd be time to rebuild the fort because it's mostly gone, you know. They just didn't last. One of the big reasons is we needed better standards. We needed something objective, something outside of us, something precise, something true, something straight, something right, something perfect to judge our work. If we wanted that work to last, and David says in verses seven and eight that the law of the Lord is perfect. It is trustworthy, he says. It is right, he says. And that is true, whether you believe it or not. Whether I believe it or not, that is true because the law of the Lord flows out of the very character of who God is. And that means that these laws are not arbitrary and it means that they don't change or shift over time. They are in no way dependent upon us. What we think, what we feel about these things, honestly, honestly, hear me on this. It doesn't matter. Because these precepts are rooted and grounded in God himself. And look at what these precepts do. Uh, There in verse 7, it says they revive the soul. They're actually life-giving. To follow these precepts is life-giving to us. It says they make wise the simple. It's actually referring to a babe, a baby. How wise is a baby? We'll leave it alone and you'll find out it will die very quickly can't feed itself, can't care for itself, doesn't know what's dangerous, what what is not. It's simple. Part of the growing process is to become wise. In verse 8, David says that these precepts of God, they give joy to the heart. They give light, he says, to the eyes, which is, as you know, that's what our eyes need in order to see where in the world we're going. What, What is my next step here? I need light to see that. The law, the word of the Lord does all of those things. Without the law of the Lord, you have no straight edge. You have no way to build a life. So obvious question here. (laughs) What is your straight edge, really? Really? I mean, what guides your choices and and your decisions, what, what checks your desires, what decides what is righteous and what is good. We, we all have and use standards to decide these things. We all do. Every person does. Adam and Eve did. They had standards in the garden. Apparently, more than anything else, what they wanted was to be like God. Or really translated, that means to be equal with God. That's what the serpent told them would happen if they ate of the one forbidden fruit in all the garden. He told them they surely wouldn't die. That's what he told them. And he told them they would become like God. But come to find out, this is a spoiler alert if you haven't read this. uh, the, The serpent was lying to them. What the serpent said was exactly untrue. So when they ate, they did die. They died immediately spiritually. They're immediately estranged from God. Where do we find them? Hiding, covered up and hiding from God. Immediately they're estranged from God. They they die spiritually immediately, and then they eventually die physically. And then also they become exactly unlike God. They become sinful. They become unrighteous. They become self-seeking, which is not God. Adam and Eve did not listen to God's word. They ignored his law. They listened instead to the evil one. Very frequent refrain in the book of Judges. They did what seemed right in their own eyes. That's what we've all been doing ever since, isn't it? I am ashamed to say. We've been trying to be like God. We we want to be equal with God. Even as we deny him, even as we ignore his glory, we make our own laws based on little more than what we think will make us happy, what we think will give us pleasure, what we hope will make others like us, what we think feels good. And there's almost a diabolical irony in this because God's law, God's word is so clear, friends, about one thing and namely this, that happiness or the word the Bible uses is blessedness. Blessedness cannot and will not be found in seeking your own pleasure. The Psalms declare, blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. And the irony is that when I die to my relentless pursuit of me, pursuit of self, self-righteousness, self promotion, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-identification, and I begin to live in submission to God and his word and his law, that's where and when I begin to be blessed, to experience blessedness. The Bible expands on that whole idea with other words like peace or shalom. I enter into the shalom, the good sweet place wherein a human being is meant to dwell and flourish. David said in Psalm 119, great peace have they who love your law. And nothing can make them stumble. Peace and joy and blessing and hope and love and endurance and strength. And the list just goes on and on. All the things we need in life, all the things we really long for and want. These are all things we find in keeping God's law. Now, of course, this all has profound implications because you see the the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, giving joy to the heart and light to the eyes. If you ignore the law of God, if you break his precepts, the result will inevitably be your soul will shrivel and your thoughts will become foolish thoughts and your heart will be filled not with joy but with sorrow and your eyes will have no light you will be stumbling around in darkness now the way of saying all that if you break his precepts your very behavior will eventually break you It will eventually lead to eternal destruction, eternal damnation, eternal separation from the God you were made to serve. You see, friends, it should be so obvious to us because all of heaven and earth are proclaiming this. This should be so incredibly obvious to us, but it's not because of sin. Submission to God's good law does not enslave us. It actually liberates us. And we should know this. We should see this. God's law is so good, it lets us be who we are actually meant to be. Creatures made for his glory, submitting to him, honoring him. This is the very thing for which we were made. It's why we're here. I came across this quote uh, by Martin Luther, the the great reformer. He was studying a passage of scripture with his students. These were uh, young men uh, wanting to enter the ministry, and um, it just kind of illustrates his own commitment to personal submission to God's law, to God's word. Uh, He was studying a passage with his students, and he came across a passage that wasn't making a lot of sense to him. In fact, he he actually didn't like what he thought it was saying. (laughs) But, and, he, and he said this to in that context to his students. He said, quote, You should not believe your conscience or your feelings more than the word which the Lord who receives sinners preaches to you. In other words, his will over my will, no matter what. You see, the Bible says we need God's law. We need his word. His ordinance are altogether righteous. Verse 9. To us, you see, they are more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, verse 10. And the point is, we need God's law like we need vital resources for life, vital riches for life, like we need food, like we need sustenance. God's law, if listened to and obeyed, They bring liberation. They bring life. His law, the goodness of it, the righteousness it displays is what we were made for. It is the restriction that we need. I had a professor uh, in college. My major was philosophy, and this professor was incredibly smart. You never wanted to cross him. And uh, he'd make you look silly in, in the class. Uh, he made me look silly many times. Uh, but this professor would make the argument uh, in many occasions that real freedom only happens when you have the right restrictions. It wasn't unique to him, but he, he would just note the truth of that. A life without restrictions is not free. It's actually not life. You will die. Every creature lives with restrictions. Everything, in fact, on, in life illustrates this point. everything has restrictions and needs them you take a sparrow and you submerge it in water what happens not a pretty sight it dies it's going to flail around for a second but it's not going to live very long there not in that environment not with those restrictions because it doesn't have the equipment there to flourish right but a sparrow in the right environment put it in the air and man they dart everywhere we watch them at night in our backyard they're all over the place I guess eating something I can't see what they're eating But they soar and they fly and they flourish because there it has the right set of restrictions. A polar bear in Miami and a jogger in the Arctic, they're both dying because they both are in the wrong environment. But you reverse those environments and they thrive. They need the right set of restrictions. And you you get the idea here. David says, for you and me to thrive spiritually, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, we need a certain personal, spiritual environment. We need God's moral authority in our lives. Psalm 19, by them, your servant is warned. David is acknowledging this point right there. You see, by your precepts, by your law, by your word, I'm warned, don't go there, don't do that. Here's where that's gonna get you. And he goes on to say, in keeping them, there is great reward. Walk in my statutes and you will be blessed. You see, living our lives in obedience to God's word will bless us. It will help you and me be who we are truly, truly meant to be. Now, at this point, we run into a problem in this psalm. We really do. David has said there is a God, whether you believe it or not. And he is glorious, and it's being shouted day after day after day, whether you can see it or not. The heavens declare the glory of God. This God has given us his law, his word. We call it special revelation. We call it the Bible. He has revealed himself and his will to us. But David says, and there's a dramatic shift in the direction and the tone at this point in the psalm. This is verse 12. David says, who can discern his errors? Who can really know his sin? You feel some tension there? Here's kind of David's thought. He's You say, when I fear the Lord, when I I know he's real and I put my faith in him and I look at his precepts, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Verse 8, the ordinance of the Lord are are sure and altogether righteous. Verse 9, but I also know something in me is badly broken. Something in me likes to sin. Something likes sin me more than anyone or anything else something in me even deceives me about my own sin it's the same thought that the prophet jeremiah expressed in jeremiah 17 the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it and the answer is no one and that is what sin does in me friends I can't even understand my own brokenness, my own sin, why I do some of the things I do, why I think some of the things I think. My thoughts are confused and conflicted. Yes, 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 I want, what I really want is, I I want good, I want to be good, I want to honor God, I want to give him glory, I want to please him, I want to walk in accord with his precepts, but I also want what I want. I want to please me even if that means displeasing God. And this is David's struggle. And this is David's recognition in this psalm when he cries out, who can discern his errors? This is why David prays, forgive me, forgive my hidden faults. He's talking about the sin that he does even when he's not aware of it. Are you aware of the fact that you sin and you're not aware of it? The person with whom you came is deeply aware of this. (laughs) You talk to them. David is talking about the sin that he does even when he's he's completely oblivious. The times he hurts people around him, not even knowing it. Uh, The self-centeredness he's constantly displaying without even being aware of it. But David doesn't stop there. You notice in verse 13 he says, keep me from willful sins. Uh Aha. May they not rule over me. You see, these are the sins we knowingly commit. And I appreciate David's honesty here. I mean, he's the king. He doesn't have to admit this to anybody, but he admits it wide open. Willful sins. And I'll tell you what, David is exactly right. These sins, willful sins, they do rule over us. Because we go after these sins, you see. We give ourselves to these sins. And what happens is they become our gods. They become our idols. They become the things we think we simply have to have. These sins, you understand, hold us in bondage. They kill us. And they become addictions, good things. Things like work or making money or succeeding in business or doing well academically or well in sport. These good things become bad things because we turn them into gods. Good things like food or drink or recreation or sex, all used in their proper context are a huge blessing, a gift given to us from God, a good God. But when we overindulge, when we take them out of their proper context, they become addictions, friends, addictions. Food and drink become gluttony and drunkenness. Recreation becomes sloth and laziness. Sex becomes adultery. It becomes pornography. People pursue good things wrongly and always have. That's nothing new. And when we do, these things become bad things, things to which we become addicted. And David is acknowledging that these things happen in him, despite who God is, the reality of God. Despite what God's law says, David knows that the sin in him destroys him. It destroys him personally. It destroys his relationship with God. And because he fears the Lord, as it says in verse 9, this is not what David's heart really desires. There's actually a sort of movement in Psalm 19, uh, the first six verses about the general revelation of God. Uh, the following verses, verses 7 to 14, about God's special revelation. And, and this is a movement from uh, an acknowledgement of God, His greatness, His gloriousness. Uh, I don't think that's a word. Uh, the fact that He's the creator and He's the sustainer. It moves from that idea to this idea of fearing God, the God who is our covenant-making God the God who makes promises to us, the God who comes to redeem us. And we see this movement in how David uses the names of God in this psalm. The first six verses of this psalm, David uses the name Elohim for God. This is the generic name for God, the divine being, right? Right? Elohim is the creator maker. He is the sustainer. He is the glorious almighty. But in verses seven to 14, David shifts and he starts using a personal name, the personal name for God, Yahweh. And understand, this is quite intentional on David's part. Yahweh is God's covenant making name. It's the name God gave Moses at Sinai. It's a name given to God's people to personally identify their God from any other God that is claimed to be known by other people. And this name, Yahweh, identifies God as the God who rescued his people from Egypt. God as the God who entered into covenant with them. God as the God who redeems them out of their sin. This is God's personal name, Yahweh. It's a name David uses when he is wrestling with the fact that God's law is perfect perfect. It commands us to be courageous, to be honest, to be loving, to be humble, to be good, to be gentle, to be wise, to be faithful, to be forgiving, to be like God himself. And our hearts say, yes, that is what I want to be. That is who I need to be. God and his law are perfect, righteous, and good, radiant with truth and beauty. But I am not. I am sinful. I am unrighteous. I am a lawbreaker. And friends, this is David in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. You see, when we fear God, we love God. And we understand his law correctly. It's perfection. It's sweetness. It's trust. Worthiness. We want what David wants what he says in verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord. Yes, yes, that's what we want. That is our prayer too. But that's not who we are, is it? And that is precisely why David ends this beautiful psalm. Almost, uh, as I read it and hear it, it's almost as with a sigh. It's like, yes, but I'm not. And what he says is in verse 14, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're my rock, my foundation. You're my redeemer. David knew that only God could be his rock. And only God could be his redeemer. That that is where David brings us from Elohim to Yahweh. And just like for David in the Old Testament, so also in the New, we are reminded, friends, and I hope you know this with clarity, uh, it's the only thing that will keep us on track. We are reminded that our religion is only for moral failures. For people who know they need a redeemer. Jesus was dining one time at Levi's house, Matthew's home, and Matthew was going to leave his business, his tax collecting business behind. He was going to follow Jesus. And so at this dinner, we're told this, that a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus' disciples. This is what they asked. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And apparently, they said this loud enough that Jesus overheard them or Jesus just knew what they were thinking. I don't know which. But Jesus turns at them and addresses them. And he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus was telling them that if you think you are righteous, If you think you obey God's precepts and law perfectly, if you think you have healed yourself by keeping the law, then you haven't begun to understand it. The law of God reveals the character of God. It is perfect. It is trustworthy. It is right. It is radiant. It is beautiful. But the law of God also, unfortunately, reveals our character. And we are none of those things. So, like David, we cry out, Who can discern his errors? And I'll tell you what, if that's you, if you feel the weight of this text that we've read and talked about this morning, then you can look to Jesus. Because Jesus says to you, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. That's you and me, friends. He is our rock, and he is our redeemer. There is no other. And he gives us a meal to come gather around together and to partake of that directly reminds us of these truths. We all come as lawbreakers to this table, but we also come longing, do we not? We come longing to be more like our Savior, to be more in love with Him, to become more obedient to His law, to become more receptive to the truth that we find in His Word. We all long for those things, but even as we long for them, we have to acknowledge, that is not me. The perfection of the law. I'm a lawbreaker. But Jesus is the lawkeeper.